I can remember 10, 15 years ago, it was hard to find a doctor who was interested in plant-based nutrition. And then we started having these little conferences, American College of Lifestyle Medicine and Plantrition, and, and they just ballooned in very short order. I see more and more young people going into medicine, going into dietetic, who are plant-based themselves and are determined to do what they can to move things along in the right direction. I never thought I would see in my lifetime what I'm seeing today. The word vegan or plant-based plastered over foods in an effort to sell more of the foods. Even Lithuania has a master's of lifestyle medicine that's completely plant-based. And we're seeing just more and more of it. I am extraordinarily optimistic. That's registered dietitian, Brenda Davis. And this is episode 153 of The Proof Podcast. Hello, my beautiful friends. How are you doing? I hope very well. Welcome back to another episode. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. For those who are tuning in for the first time, Thanks for finally joining us, gracing us with your presence. I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Today's conversation with registered dietitian Brenda Davis was one that I had been looking forward to having for a very long time. Brenda is one of the most revered experts across the globe when it comes to plant-based nutrition with over three decades of experience communicating nutrition science without hype to help people optimize their diet. With the release of her 12th book, Nourish, yes, 12th book, which Brenda co-wrote with pediatrician Dr. Rishma Shah, I thought it would be a great opportunity to have her on the show to share her story and talk about some of the important things for families to consider when shifting to a plant-based approach. The benefits that are up for grabs, the ins and outs of fat, fiber, protein, and much more. Perhaps my favorite part of the conversation being the insights that Brenda shared about her own personal journey, including the lesson she learned from her friend that was into deer hunting and how she wrestled with the dairy industry, the details of which you will find out shortly. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is Brenda Davis. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. 
I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Brenda Davis, we made it happen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And straight off the top, congratulations. Another incredible book, Nourish, that I have here in my hands. It is fabulous. You and and, and Reshma should be very, very proud. Oh, thank you. Uh, is this, what's this, book 12 for you? This is book 12, and thank you very much for those kind words. It was a bit of a labor of love, feeling that there wasn't much for families out there, and just decided we would just do it, and we did it during COVID, so that was good time. It is very comprehensive, and you're right, there is has been a lack of information for families, so uh, you've done a tremendous job, and there's so much information packed within each chapter to really give families the confidence they need to to lean more into this sort of style of eating and this plant-based approach. I want to dive into the book, but before we do that, you as an individual in this space, you're one of the most revered and trusted voices in the world of plant-based nutrition and, and dietetics, certainly across the world. And I'm sure most of the listeners have come across your work, if not multiple of your books over the over the years. And I'm wondering, you've written this book for families. I'm wondering for you, for Brenda Davis, what was life like for you as a young girl? What was your family life like? I have to say I had a wonderful family life. I was very, very fortunate to be raised in a tremendously loving family and we had a lot of adventures we my dad was in the air force we lived in germany for a while and 
got to travel around. But definitely, I had something inside me that was a, a deeper sensitivity towards animals than some people do, I think. And I think that's true for so many people who end up in this, in this plant-based world. And so when you say you had that sort of uh, deep level of compassion for not just humans, but all non-human animals, as you were growing up, did you have sort of internal dialogue going through your mind as you're sitting down and eating animals or what parts of your life can you remember sort of being challenged on the lifestyle that you were leading and perhaps how you felt about these animals? Oh, this is such a, an interesting question. I, I can remember as a really young child, I didn't make that connection that much. I just felt when I saw worms on a sidewalk or I can remember when my little turtle died, I, I, I had to have a full-blown funeral for him. I just, I have to tell you the story about my son because I think he's very much like me and when he was about three years old, uh, and he's 33 now, he said to me, Mommy, can we have a McDonald's hamburger? And we were driving by McDonald's, and I decided it was time to tell him why we didn't eat McDonald's hamburgers. So I said, honey, I said, the hamburgers at McDonald's aren't the same as the ones we have at home. At home, they're made of beans and grains and things like that, and at McDonald's, they're made of cows. And he looked at me and said, Mommy, people do not eat cows. As if it was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard in his life. I wasn't quite sure what to say. And he said, do they, Mommy? Do they? And I said, yes. And he started to cry. And he said to me, Mommy, them have eyes. Don't they know that cows are people too? And I think as small children, there's a sensibility there that, that we, we just get, that they think, they feel, they love, they do, you know, they're connected to their offspring, all of those things that mammals do, and, and we just get it. And I think I did as a small child, but somehow as I grew up, you get desensitized to the food you're eating because it's so camouflaged in cellophane, if you will. You know, I remember in high school starting to question all of it. And I got very interested in the whole idea of vegetarian. And I even started moving in that direction myself. I lived in Northern Ontario at the time, which is really hunting and fishing territory. And uh, I had never met a real live vegetarian. I, I couldn't imagine actually really being a vegetarian, I just wanted to be. And, and then when I went to university for nutrition, again, it was, you know, we learned two things about plant-based diets. We learned vegetarian diets were risky and vegan diets were downright dangerous. And that was it. And when I finally, at the age of about 30, I'm 62 now, but at the age of about 30, when I, um, you know, made the decision to become completely plant-based, it was scary. It was really scary because I didn't really know if I was the only vegetarian, vegan dietitian on the planet. I had never heard of any others. Uh, 
certainly all of the food guides in the Western world, sort of half of the guide was animal products. And so I didn't, I wasn't quite sure how I could actually even be a dietitian and, and be a vegan. But uh, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. And I, I did make a conscious decision that I would stay and I would do this. And I thought, you know, if everybody who sees sort of the bigger picture of the consequences of what we're actually consuming for the planet, for the animals, for other people, if everybody in my profession who gets it just leaves, nothing will ever change. So I, I made a vow to myself that I would do everything I could to change it. So I want to dig into that a little, a little bit. You mentioned quite a few very interesting things there. The first that I, I want to sort of better understand is you went through your childhood and your teenage years and university and you were still eating, I'm going to assume, a standard sort of diet with the standard animal foods that feature regularly. And as you say, as a society, we've very much normalized their consumption. And university wasn't so accepting of a vegetarian and vegan diet at that time. When, when were you at university? What year were you going through your course? Well, it was uh, 1978 uh, to 1982 that I did my undergrad and then uh, 1983 when I did my internship. Okay. And so at some point you decided to change your diet. So after hearing from university that these diets were dangerous, what was it that you experienced that really motivated you to, to say, you know what, as an individual, I'm going to assess my food choices and I am going to make change? Yeah, well, it was, it was 1989 and I had completed my studies. I was actually a public health nutritionist in Northern Ontario, and I uh, was very successful in my career. And what it was actually was I, I was still very intrigued with plant-based eating and, and I found myself shifting in that direction more and more because I cared about health and I knew that these were the foods that were most concentrated nutritionally. But what actually pushed me over the edge was something that very few people would expect would have been what propelled my career. And that was actually an interaction with one of my dear, very close friends who was actually best man at our wedding. And he was on his way deer hunting and he, he came uh, by for coffee on his way to kill another deer. And I remember thinking to myself, what could I say to him that would stop him from shooting another deer? And so I, I said to him, I, I don't understand why you do this when you don't have to do this. It, like, why would you want to shoot an innocent animal that just wants to live? And um, it was what he said back to me that actually really changed the course of my life. He said, you know, Brenda, just because you don't have the guts to pull the trigger does not mean you're not responsible for the trigger being pulled. Every time you buy your piece of meat camouflaged in cellophane from the grocery store. And then he said, at least the animals I eat have had a life. I doubt you can say the same for the ones that are sitting on your plate. And he silenced me. I had no response because I knew what he was saying was absolutely true. And it was the first time anybody had really forced me to take responsibility 
for the food that I was purchasing in the grocery store. And I thought to myself, I need to find out more. I need to learn more about where my food is actually coming from. And I started searching. I even ordered agricultural journals so I could better understand our our system of raising animals. And it took me about a week to decide that I was done. I could not. I could not, knowing what I know, continue consuming animal products. And uh, it was really a scary thing for me. I had two small children. They were four and one. I had a husband who grew up in northern Ontario uh, hunting and fishing. And, and I can remember, you know, thinking I need to ask him if he would be willing to do this because, you know, I didn't want to just do it on my own. I wanted it to be our family. And And I'll never forget when I asked him the question, what he responded. He he looked at me and he smiled and he said, I thought you'd never ask. I'd love to be a vegetarian. He said, I've always wanted the most important thing in the world to me is to leave a smaller footprint on this planet. And he said, I can't think of a better way of doing that than being vegetarians. Let's do it. And I just thought, I must be the luckiest (laughs) person in the world. We've been married for 43 years now, so it's all good. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. So you have that experience with the deer hunter and that leaves you feeling a little bit like a hypocrite, I imagine. And so you decide that you can no longer, with your dollars, vote for that system. Now, you're a trained nutritionist professional at this stage. As you alluded to earlier your studies, your university, uh, your lecturers, I assume, we're not speaking so favorably of a vegetarian and uh, a vegan diet. So I'm wondering, as you said, you would have been met with some fear. How did you go about working out how to then construct your diet for yourself, I'm assuming firstly, and, and your husband in a way that was nutritionally adequate because, you know, I'm assuming in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a lot less information than there is today. So can you walk me through that process? Yeah, well, you know, the thing that came to mind right away is I'm a dietitian. If I can't do it, who can? <laughs> and I read Every study that had, you know, I read uh, the O'Connell study, the farm study, and the big study in the UK that followed children for about 20 years. I Like everything I could get my hands on, I read. And I remember the big thing that came to my mind was, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this responsibly, and I'm going to make sure that I know my stuff. One of the best documents that I came across was was something that's sitting right beside me right now. This, This was written in 1990. This is Diet, Nutrition, and the Prevention of Chronic Diseases from the World Health Organization, 1990. And it was probably the most powerful influencer I had at the time. It was brilliantly written. And this document really looked at what needs to be done from a global perspective. And it helped me to recognize the potential advantages of consuming a diet that was more centered on plants. And so what I really needed to do was 
figure out how to do this in a way that it wouldn't be at all deficient. And so really just learning as much as I could. And then it was very shortly after that I wrote this book called Becoming Vegetarian, which was really a, a plant-based book, 100% or not predominantly, but exclusively plant-based book in a bit of disguise, because in those days, I don't know that uh, too many people were ready for vegan, but it was a predominantly vegan book. And, uh, and so I was looking in so much detail about, okay, so what about vitamin B12? What about vitamin D? What about the essential fatty acids, especially, you know, ALA is not a big deal, but what about EPA and DHA? How do you know, how do we ensure that we convert ALA sufficiently? All of those little details and, and uh, it took some research, but I felt really, really strongly that, that if we don't get it right, <laughs> and as a dietitian and someone who's going to be helping people to get it right, if we don't get it right, we become exhibit number one for why people are justified eating meat. And so it was really important to me that we get it right. What's incredible to me looking back on that is a lot of your work that you were doing and becoming vegetarian, you were essentially paving the way for what we see now has grown enormously. And so many people reference back to the work you've done over the years. I'm curious, you published Becoming Vegetarian. And you say that you're not sure if the world was was ready for the full plant-exclusive uh, vegan diet at that stage. Did you receive any criticism or pushback from Dietetics Association or from colleagues? Well, you know, this is another interesting story because our colleagues were actually pretty good about the whole thing, but the dairy industry in Canada... I think had heart failure when they saw the book because they thought it would be a wonderful promotion of dairy products, becoming vegetarian. And uh, when they saw that there was a chapter called Without Dairy, uh, they were not pleased to say the least. And they actually, uh, the Dairy Bureau of Canada wrote a 45 page rebuttal to the book. They also took out a full page ad in our professional journal to criticize us, calling us irresponsible dietitians, and how dare we say that anybody could survive without dairy, basically. And uh, they made the document free of charge to every health professional in the country. So I was mortified. I was absolutely mortified when, when this all happened, because you can imagine a full-page ad in your professional journal calling you irresponsible and all of this. But I quickly realized when I thought about it, I thought, you know, why would they spend the thousands of dollars they spent to create this document and to make it available and to take out a very expensive ad in a professional journal? I thought that the only reason is because they're taking what we're saying seriously and they're afraid that we are going to reduce you know, their sales. <laughs> and so that was the bottom line. And, and so I thought, no, I'm, I wrote a 45 page rebuttal to their rebuttal. Their rebuttal was a joke. As a matter of fact, it was so bad. It was so bad that they opened with saying that, you know, these dietitians are saying that 
We need to reduce animal products. And if we did that, we would be reducing our consumption of ruminant fat and increasing our consumption of unsaturated fat. And that would make cancer just go through the roof. That was one of their big arguments, which was just beyond ridiculous. And so as it turned out, a lot of our dietitian friends sided with us because they thought their rebuttal was so poorly done. And I have to tell you this story because in 2017, my co-author, Vasanto Molina, actually um, won the highest award offered by Dietitians of Canada uh, called the Riley Jeffs Memorial Lecture Award. My writing partner is now 79 years old. And she won this award and at the end of her lecture, one of the people that allowed this ad to go in the professional journal actually apologized to her for ever allowing that to happen. And so winning the highest award of Dietitians of Canada, I had the privilege of presenting to Dietitians of Canada on a number of occasions. And I can remember doing an interview with the powers that be uh, and the head of the entire organization came to me afterwards. And this was probably in 2010 and gave me a little gift. And she said, I just want you to know that you make me proud to be a dietitian. And so it was surprising to me how little pushback we had from our peers. As a matter of fact, I think they were grateful that we were providing the information they needed to help people do plant-based diets well. And both Fasanto and I have been very involved in the American dietetic world as well. I actually was the president of the sort of vegetarian branch of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and she ended up being the senior writer for the position statement from that organization. So we've been very actively involved there as well. And, and again, the reception from our peers was just a really, uh, really wonderful. We haven't had a lot of issues in that regard. Thank goodness. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, you must have be a very strong person and very thick skinned to be able to endure that sort of pressure from the industry. I'm just thinking in hindsight, it may sound, you know, like your passion for improving the planet and, and helping these non-human animals would be enough to spur you along and motivate you through these tough times. But I can imagine that there would have been some days and some nights where it would have been very challenging as a young dietitian to keep pushing. And so I'm wondering, did you ever feel like folding? Was that ever an option for you? Never. Not even remotely. Sometimes it was hard, for sure, no question. There were times when it, it was challenging. But every time, Simon, every time something happened that kind of got me down a little bit, I would remind myself about what the millions of animals that become our food go through. And what I'm going through is nothing in comparison. Uh, I think about the millions of people that don't get enough food to eat, that, you know, I'm so privileged and uh, I just have always felt like no matter what I have to go up against, it's nothing in comparison to what many other people go up against. And you must have been pleased or relatively pleased with the most recent Canadian food guidelines and I noticed that they 
are now specifically telling people to choose plant protein over animal protein and have removed dairy as a necessary uh, food group. Was that something that you were happy to see? Oh, it was that would be the understatement of the century. It was like the biggest Christmas present ever. <laughs> you know, there's no question we influenced that uh, that decision. And I, I mean, I just couldn't be more proud of Health Canada because having dairy as an essential part of food guides is the standard for Western civilization. And I think Canada is, uh, has set a precedent that is really quite remarkable. And the way that they were able to do that is that the head of the Health Canada nutrition section at the time made a vow to Canadians that they would not allow industry influence, period. And keeping industry influence out, that they would make this guide science-based. And that is what they did. And so the guide is very clear that, um, you know, half of the plate should be fruits and vegetables, a quarter of the plate grains, and a quarter of the plate protein-rich foods. And protein-rich foods can include some animal products, meat or poultry or fish or, or eggs or dairy for that matter. But they put a big emphasis on choosing plant protein sources over animal protein sources as much as possible. And so uh, legumes and tofu and nuts and seeds are very much front and center in that group. And so it's very easy to follow a plant-exclusive diet and follow Canada's food guide now. You know, one of the things that makes me so proud of that is that there's so many people in the world, you know, 70% or close to it, of people on the planet don't tolerate uh, dairy products very well. And in our view, it, it's fairly racist to have a guide that would necessitate a food that isn't something that sits well with such a large percentage of humanity. And so this guide, it allows for a range of choices, but with an emphasis on plant-based eating, which is really uh, something to me Canada can be very proud of. And 20 or 30 years on, I guess, from when you published Becoming Vegetarian, is the dairy industry still fighting? Are they still, what was their response to those changes in, in guidelines in Canada? Well, they were not happy campers, I can tell you that. Uh, there was a lot of pushback from the dairy and the meat industries. And, you know, my biggest fear is that if another political party comes in, that it may change. And so we're just hoping that Health Canada has the backbone to stick with this particular guide and not allow industry influence. So, so far, so good. <laughs> we'll see. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. 
With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends. The scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. The back of your book, Nourish, says the future of food is plants. And I totally agree with that. And for all the reasons that you've so beautifully spoken to already, and this is no doubt becoming a way of eating that more and more families are wanting to move towards. But at the same time, because it's not the social or cultural norm or the accepted way of doing things, often this this motivation to change can be met with a degree of trepidation. So my first question here for you is, what are the real health benefits on offer for children and for families that are raised on a plant-based diet as opposed to a standard diet? I, I think the main thing is that it reduces our risk of overweight, obesity, and chronic diseases. And people may say, well, that's not number one priority in childhood. Number one priority in childhood is, of course, ensuring adequate growth and development and adequate nutrients. However, that having been said, we can accomplish that task while still helping to build habits and to you know, prevent overweight and obesity and, and chronic diseases, which 
often begin in childhood. And we can ensure um, healthier, fuller lives for our children. And those habits are very much ingrained from an early age. So what we know is that children that are raised on a plant-based diet, they eat more fiber, they eat more fruits and vegetables, they eat less sugar. They tend to have what we call a higher quality diet. So if we look at, you know, just a quality diet scores in terms of, you know, the amount of real whole healthy foods people are eating, people who are eating plant-based do better on those kinds of scoring systems consistently. And so that's giving something very, very important to our children. And so what would you say to a family, I, I see this quite often, even if I think about myself, right? Let's let's use me as a, an anecdote here. I grew up in Australia and actually I spent eight years when I was very young in America. And so I've had a bit of a standard American diet and then a standard Australian diet. They're very similar in many ways. And my diet growing up was quite a lot of home-cooked meals, but meat was always the hero of the plate. You know, what's for dinner, mum? Well, chicken something or beef something. And the plants were there, but they were they were an afterthought. And then growing up, like through school and through sport, often celebrations were at the fast food outlets uh, and kids were almost steering the car there. That's where, that's where we wanted to go and it became the norm. But I was a very athletic, active kid, and I wasn't overweight. So from the outside, I looked like a very healthy, happy kid. And I think in speaking with a lot of families, you sort of alluded to it before. I think it's hard sometimes for families to see that and see that their kids are eating the animal products. Maybe they are hearing that they're they're not so great to be eating a lot of, but their kids are eating these foods and they actually, they're not overweight or by any means extremely overweight. They appear healthy. It's hard for them to grapple with this idea of then removing foods from their diet. Yeah, and what I would say in response to that is that what you want the focus to be on is on adding foods to the diet rather than removing foods, especially in the earliest stages, because it's hard to remove things. It's a lot easier to add things and to focus on just squeezing out the bad stuff with more good stuff. And so getting kids excited about food and engaging them in growing foods and picking foods and going to farms and going to farmers markets and helping to pick the produce at the grocery store, teaching about, you know, some of the really cool things, whether it's star-shaped fruits or whatever it is. And then, you know, just having them also engaged in the food preparation. And so I think it's one of the greatest gifts we can give our kids is to make them very capable in the kitchen. And uh, I can remember even when my, you know, my daughter was 10 years old or my son was 10 years old, they were both very capable of preparing a wonderful meal for the family. And so I think that's really, really important. And when kids are preparing the food, if they're growing the food, if they're picking the food, if they're preparing the food, they get very excited about tasting the food. <laughs> and, and then the other thing, Simon, I think is when you're making that switch, to take some of the 
favorites, the family favorites, whether it's tacos or burgers or, or you know, spaghetti and meatballs or whatever it is, and veganizing them or making plant-based versions of those family favorites. And today that might mean having some of these more processed burgers or whatever, but it can help in that transition process and it can make it much easier for the family to transition as well. And the other thing with children, you know, I can remember uh, explaining to my kids why we eat the way we eat. And I think that's an important piece. Children have this basic understanding of compassion for animals. And, And if they understand why you're doing it, often, you know, they're quite happy to do it as well. Now, one of the things that I did, and some people may say I took the easy way out, but I I told our children that this is the way we eat at home. What you eat when you're at your friend's house or you're out is really up to you. And so it was interesting to see their response to that because I remember my son when he was about four years old eating some meat at a friend's house. And when he came home, he asked me, what kind of animal he had eaten. And when I told him, I think he cried for about two hours. He threw himself on the floor. He was just so disgusted with himself. And he said, mommy, please don't ever let me do that again. I can't believe I ate a pig. I ate a pig. How could I have done that? You know, it was just mortifying to him. And then he owned it. It became his choice, not mine. And uh, and I think that can be very, very valuable for children. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Allowing some freedom of choice can be very powerful. That's a perfect example right there. I'm wondering, as you were raising your family, were you ever met with any sort of criticism? Often families are met with comments from friends or from family or from people online. We know that the online space can be pretty nasty at times. And and often I see people throwing around claims that vegan diets are dangerous for children and, you know, parents should be put in prison for doing this. And this is, of course, not coming from people who are across the science, but that can be pretty tough on a mother or father or a family to deal with. Is that something that you've experienced or helped manage patients, clients through? Yeah. Well, for for myself, of course, we didn't actually have anything online (laughs) when my kids were little. There was no internet. We did uh, face a lot of criticism from my family and my husband's family as well. And they were scared to death that we were stunting our children, that they wouldn't be properly nourished. But I think more than that, Simon, I think the biggest thing is that You know, I think every human being, almost more than life itself, we care about belonging. And part of belonging within our tribe is the food we share. And in our family, food was super important. My dad was a big foodie. And so he showed us love with the food that, you know, the big filet mignons or the lobster, whatever he would, it was just really important to him. And that we were eating differently well, how was he going to, you know, connect with the children when food was the big way he did it? And so it took a really deep conversation or several deep conversations about how we would 
continue bonding as a family and how we could share food and what just how we would navigate that whole thing. And that, and I know my friends who have literally cut themselves off from the family and created new tribes with, you know, similar like-minded people instead. I would never do that. I could never do that because I just love my family so deeply. And I, I never wanted the difference in our food intake to come between us. And I was so determined not to let that happen. But I do know for a lot of people, it is really hard. And one of the things, I think especially if you face criticism from people that you really care about or your medical care team, like your physician, uh, for example, that's when you want to arm yourself with the best possible resources and say, you know, I, especially if it's your physician that you so appreciate all the care they've given for your family, but this is really important to you and you want to share these resources so that they can understand why you're doing this and how carefully you're doing it. And often your healthcare provider is just afraid that your children aren't going to be well-nourished and they don't have the education or the background. And so providing them with the, the position statement on vegetarian diets from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics or the Italian position statement, there are a number of position statements that can be really, really helpful, not just to your healthcare provider, but to your family as well. And to let them know how you're constructing, just to share with them the things that you're doing to make sure that your children grow and thrive. And I think that's the best that you can do. With your family, can you remember any of the strategies that you perhaps used to work through that and to have the family sort of come together and understand that, look, our bonding over food is really important, but it's it's more so us and us spending time together, not so much exactly what's on the plate. Do you remember, was that a process that sort of took, you know, years to work through or was it something that happened quicker than that? Yeah, and it happened much quicker than that. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't want to be sitting at a table with a big dead turkey anymore. It was hard for me, but I also felt that I would sooner be with my family than not. And so the way that I dealt with that kind of thing is, you know, we would plan out the menu so that we could share everything except for the main dish. And then the main dish, I would make my tofu creation, which was a big molded stuffed tofu thing and they would make their turkey and everything else would be shared. We would even do the same dressing so that we were having the same kind of dressing because that was like an old family recipe. And we just worked through it in, in those kinds of ways rather than ever saying, well, we're not gonna eat a meal together. We will eat a meal together and whatever it is, if my mom was making beef bourguignon, we would figure out a way to do vegan bourguignon. <laughs> And then we would share everything else. And so we just, I, it was so important to me to be able to continue to enjoy those family times. And what I found that was really interesting is a lot of my extended family was very, very resistant. And they 
questioned why we were doing this. And it was so silly. And my dad was French Canadian. Meat was a huge part of the diet, meat pies and meat, everything. And one of the things that I noticed over time was that our family became more and more respectful of the choice we made. And I can remember one of the last family gatherings we had, one of my aunts was doing most of the food and she went out and bought veggie burgers for when they were doing burgers. And she bought, you know, all of these, some of the things that we would never even eat, but it just didn't matter to me. It was a veggie version of of whatever the meal she was planning. And I was just so grateful and so appreciative of her consideration and her being so respectful of our choices. And I'm finding that, you know, I found over time, it, it just went more and more that way. And one of the things that I would always try to do is make something plant-based that I knew everybody would love and make a huge amount for everyone to share. And I can't tell you how many times the family was excited about what I had made, just thought it was fantastic. I made these vegan turtles, you know, those chocolate covered caramel Cadbury turtles. I made a vegan version of those that was a really healthy version. No sugar, no, you know, the caramel was made with pine nuts and dates and it was, but they were so delicious and the family just couldn't get over how delicious they were. And so sometimes just doing things you can share that excite them because a lot of people, they want to eat healthier. And so if they can take something away that will move them towards a healthier way of eating without necessarily removing the meat, they're often very grateful for that. Yeah, I agree. I echo that. I've had very similar experience in my own family with, you know, slowly but surely more and more people becoming interested. And if you are providing food that tastes great and you leave them with a great experience and they think, well, hang on, maybe I could actually, I could do this more often. I actually don't have to sacrifice. And so I do think there is a lot to be said about leading by example and trying to maintain those relationships as healthily as possible. Absolutely. And I think there's no more powerful tool than any of us have to move others is our example. So it's just so important. You spoke before about the importance of having good resources and and being able to refer to them, be it to your friends or uh, family or physician. And your new book is a great example of that. I want to dive into some of the various topics that you discuss in the book. Perhaps before we go into a few of the nutrients I'd like to look at, can you give a little bit of a synopsis as to how yourself and Reshma have laid out the book and what the reader could expect? Yeah, so basically, Nourish, we were trying to cover everything, and we ended up with four sort of broad categories in this book, and the first being consideration. I have it uh, right in front of me, and consideration was looking at sort of the why fours of why people would want to do plant-based, and so health, home, and heart, and health, of course, being a big focus of this book, and then home being about our planet, and heart being about uh, the considerations for animals. And then the second part is called care. 
And it was really about making sure that all of your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed in terms of nutrients and going through, you know, pregnancy and lactation and all the stages of childhood. And then the third part was confidence. And that's really about the sort of principles of feeding and, you know, the importance of family meals and helping your children achieve and maintain body weights and how to raise a a veg-leaning family. And then the last part was the connection and all about preparing foods and engaging your children in sample menus and recipes and so forth. So that's kind of the book in a nutshell. (laughs) And so how did yourself and Reshma write the book together? Was this collaborative through all parts of the book? Did you split up sections of the book? What did that look like? Yeah, so basically what we did, and I have to tell you, Reshma and I actually met on an airplane going to a conference. She was sitting right beside me, and she's a pediatrician, and she was going to the same conference as I was, and we became friends, just started talking, and and I remember her asking me, she said, I need to do something to contribute more, and I said, well, what we really need is a book for families, and she said, you know what, I'll do it if you do it with me. And that was how it all began for us. But basically, for writing the book, we just divided. She did two sections. We each did, you know, a similar number of chapters, but we did our own chapters and then just passed it off to one another and then would, you know, do the edits for the other person. So we each wrote our own sections, which is how Vasanto and I do our books as well. And in terms of the most important things for parents to sort of pay attention to uh, when it comes to shifting towards a more plant-based approach. What are the particular nutrients? Perhaps we go through some of those that you've included in the book. Of course, if people want to deep dive, I encourage them to get a copy and, and read through It's the care chapter, right, where that is covered. Yeah, so the nutrients that parents are often most concerned about are protein is always a big issue, although it doesn't really need to be, and I'll explain that in a second. But the issues are usually iron, zinc, calcium, vitamin D, vitamin B12, and iodine. Omega-3 fatty acids are a consideration because of the concern about do we convert the plant omega-3s into the more biologically active long-chain omega-3s, EPA and DHA, efficiently enough. So those are really the nutrients that are most commonly a concern. Okay, so perhaps we, we walk through those. Let's start with protein. Obviously, the sort of standard school of thought is that vegetarian and vegan diets do not contain enough protein. And if we're removing these animal products, beef, turkey, chicken, dairy, where is the protein coming from? Yeah, and that's the thing is that we've all sort of uh, been indoctrinated to believe that we have to have meat or at least animal products to get enough protein. And the reality is that 50% of the protein for the world's population actually comes from plants, from grains, I should say. Grains are a huge uh, source of protein. And then in many cultures, grains and legumes are the primary sources of protein. All plants contain protein. And we need about 10 to 15% of our calories from protein, according to the World Health Organization. Plants 
all contain about 10 to 15 or more percent of their calories from protein except for fruits. And, and so if you have enough calories and you have a good variety of plant foods in the diet, generally protein is not a huge issue. And in fact, we have a couple of studies that were done pretty recently in Germany. One, the Vecchi study for toddlers, which was looking at protein intakes in one to three-year-olds. And in omnivores, they were averaging about 2.7 milligrams per kilogram per day, lacto-ovo vegetarians about 2.3, and vegans about 2.4. And the RDA is about 1.05. So everybody, whether they were omnivore or vegan, everybody was getting at least double the RDA. And of course, I'm talking about the North American RDA here. And in the, the Vecchi Youth Study, it showed, again, everybody was well within the sort of recommended intakes for protein. And there, there is some concern that people eating plant-based diets may need a little bit more protein. So, And the reason being just that um, when foods contain fiber, the fiber reduces the total absorption of protein. So you end up with a little bit um, less protein amino acids being digested, you lose some in your stool. And so there are some experts that suggest to make up for that, adding, you know, somewhere between 10 and 30% of, of the RDA, adding that for plant-based children who eat very, very high fiber, whole food plant-based diets. So that wouldn't apply as much to children that consume tofu and soy milk or other soy foods or children who eat you know, things that are lower in fiber like peanut butter and things like that, veggie meats and so forth. For those children, you wouldn't really, I mean, maybe you could say 10% higher, but but you wouldn't need much more than that. But even say for a four to eight-year-old child, we add 20% to the RDA. It's still only um, in North America about 23 grams of protein a day. That's not a lot of protein. You get that from a serving of tofu and of your grains and other foods. So it's not a huge amount of protein, and it's actually easy to achieve if the child's getting enough calories. Beautifully summarized. And Dr. Matthew Nagra, who I know that you are familiar with or, or friends with as well, he raised a good point on bioavailability in that a lot of the bioavailability studies that have been done to date looking at protein absorption have been done in animal models where digestive systems are a bit different to humans, but also even where the digestive system, say, for example, a pig, which is a little more similar to a human than a rat, often they're feeding them raw plant proteins, like raw legumes, and that's going to affect what that bioavailability is. So it would be really interesting to see some more research looking at properly prepared plant proteins and what that absorption rate looks like. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And it's true. So many of those studies have been done using raw grains, raw legumes, which are highly inappropriate to be using and to be assessing or comparing to human, you know, digestibility. And of course, rats, you know, we did the protein efficiency ratio. And, you know, the first few measures of protein quality were done using rats. And of course, rats, they grow fur, they double their size in like six days instead of 
six months or whatever it is for here, three or four months at least for humans. And so they require more sulfur-containing amino acids. So these quality measures that used rats consistently overvalue animal protein and undervalue plant protein for people. So I think that those are very important considerations. So something you just spoke to then was fiber. And I'm interested to dig into fiber a little bit. A, what are the benefits of a very fiber-rich uh, diet for a child? And also, are there any considerations with regards to potentially consuming too much fiber? And when could that be an issue? Yeah, so fiber is, as you well know, it's really the food for the bacteria in our gut. And the bacteria in our gut, they are way more important than we ever realized to overall health. They affect every system of the body, including our brains. They affect everything. And so when we consume fiber, we're consuming prebiotics, which is the food for those bacteria. And so it's just devastating when you consume a diet that is really low in fiber and very high in animal products and processed foods. You can't support a healthy gut microbiome on that kind of diet. And so people who eat plant-based diets with a lot of fiber tend to have a much healthier gut microbiome, which is just invaluable. The concern that a lot of people have, especially I find in Europe, they're very concerned about fiber in children's diets. And we did see at one time some children failing to thrive on plant-based diets in these sort of uh, communities that had very limited restrictive diets. And some of them were raw food communities. Some of them were communities where the baby would be weaned onto a formula that was made of beans that had, you know, 17 or 18 calories per 100 mils. Breast milk has 70. So these were grossly, grossly inadequate, unfortified diets. And, uh, and we saw children didn't do well. The only time I've ever seen children get too much fiber is when their diet is being spiked with concentrated fiber. So the parent is pouring wheat bran on everything and they're already eating a lot of fiber. Or in the case of where children just are eating a super low fat, super high fiber, whole food diets, where they're you know, not getting enough of those concentrated calories and they get full too quickly. And so they, you know, they fail to thrive because they're simply not getting enough calories and fiber can contribute to that because it fills them up more quickly. And so I think, again, it's just simple common sense that we want to make sure diet for children includes a range of foods and including the more energy dense foods like nut and seed butters, nuts and seeds, tofu, avocado, things like that are very important to help balance that out. Okay, cool. So fats, I'm glad that you raised that. So we shouldn't be scared of fats. And for children, fats are particularly important. What's the most important thing for parents to understand about fats? And you mentioned uh, EPA and DHA before, but what would you like people to understand about fats? Well, fats, you know, it's so funny how humans are about macronutrients. We get 
we go um, gung-ho on, you know, carbohydrates bad or fat is bad or, or protein is, you know, absolutely critical. And we, we look at all of these macronutrients as making the diet either good or bad. And what we know is that we know that the healthiest, longest-lived people on the planet consume varying amounts of macronutrients. So, for example, in the blue zones, we've got one blue zone called Okinawa that consumes a fairly low-fat diet. And then we have other blue zones like Icaria Greece that consumes a very high-fat diet. And yet they all do well. To me, what matters more than the percentages of macronutrients is really the source of those macronutrients. And so when fat or protein or carbohydrate come from whole plant foods, they are consistently protective to health. It's when we extract them and process them and start pouring them on everything that we can run into problems. Now, in terms of fat for children, uh, to me, low-fat diets are inappropriate for children because it can be hard for children to get enough calories when they're on a very low-fat diet. And also, fat is extremely important for the absorption of fat soluble nutrients that are very important, like, like vitamin A and vitamin D and vitamin E and so forth. You know, little children need probably 30 to 40% of their calories from fat. Babies will get, you know, 40 to 50% of their calories from fat once they've started solid foods. And that'll slowly reduce to about 30% when they're about three years of age. And then during childhood, it's probably around 25, 35% of calories from fat is really very reasonable for children but we want most of that fat to be coming from whole foods like nut and seed butters and avocados and tofus and so forth. Not to say that we can't use any concentrated fats and oils. They can be used if used judiciously. But the problem with using a lot of oils is that they can crowd out foods with more nutrients because they have a lot of calories and very few nutrients. So we want more of the higher fat foods that come with iron and zinc and calcium and all of those good things. Okay, cool. And one of the, I guess, powerful advantages of the plant-based approach is that much more of those fats tend to be unsaturated versus the saturated fats that are found in the common animal foods that are consumed. Yeah, so we see in omnivores, uh, they, you know, an average of 11, 12, 13% of calories from saturated fat on a pretty regular basis. In vegan communities, it, it's usually somewhere around 4, 5, 6% of calories from saturated fat. And of course, saturated fat we know is associated with increased levels of LDL cholesterol and, and uh, cardiovascular risk. So it's, you know, the, definitely the quality of fat in a plant-based diet tends to favor risk reduction of a number of chronic diseases. Okay, so while we're talking about fats, talk to me about omega-3s, bit of a buzzword, and there are various types, and you've gone into detail on this in your book, so I can think of no one better to walk us through what do we need to be aware of when it comes to omega-3s? Yeah, well, you know, omega-3s were a bit of a passion for me because when I wrote uh, Becoming Vegetarian uh, back, you know, we started in 1992, we actually had recommendations for essential fatty acids in Canada 
whereas they didn't have any in the States. And, and when we wrote the very first books, that was a big criticism from our American colleagues is all of this nonsense about essential fatty acids. And then, of course, uh, now uh, um, we have North American recommendations for essential fatty acids. And so I think people realized we might have just been a little bit ahead of the game on that count. And when we created guidelines for vegetarians for omega-3s way back when, I probably talked to six or seven leading omega-3 authorities all over the world. I talked to a researcher from Chile, from the UK, from India, just all over the place, from the United States, from Canada. And, uh, and so I got very, very passionate about this topic. And basically, my recommendations are that if you're consuming, uh, and, and just so people understand, plants have plenty of the what we really call essential fatty acids, which are alpha-linolenic acid, which is an omega-3, and linoleic acid, which is an, an omega-6. Plant foods have plenty of those. And of course, ALA isn't that well distributed in the food supply. It's you know more concentrated in flax and hemp and chia seeds and walnuts, and not as well concentrated in the sort of wide variety of foods omega-6s are. However, that having been said, Omega-3s are, are more biologically active in the body when they get converted to these long-chain fatty acids, EPA and DHA being the ones that are most uh, well-recognized. And, and so people are concerned, well, can the body convert the plant form of omega-3s into the long chain omega-3s efficiently enough? And do we even know the answer to that? And, and it's we're still at a stage where we probably don't really know the answer to that. But what we do know is that, you know, if we look at the AIs really for essential fatty acids, they're for children, it's a, around a gram or slightly more of ALA per day. What I would recommend is if you're not getting any direct sources of EPA and DHA, then you double that so that you get plenty of the precursor to EPA and DHA, which is ALA. And so looking more around the, you know, the two grams a day of EPA and DHA for children, a little bit more for adolescents. Now, this is another really important point, which you're very well aware of, I know, <laughs> Simon, but basically, EPA and DHA, in the average diet, most of it will come from fish or from egg yolks. For some people, they get a bit of DHA from egg yolks. And many people believe that you must have fish to get these long-chain omega-3s. But the reality is actually fish get their long-chain omega-3s predominantly from plants that are in the ocean called microalgae. And if we were to provide the entire global population with enough EPA and DHA from fish, the global fish stocks would be wiped out very rapidly. I mean, as it is, they're being wiped out very rapidly. It makes so much more sense to go to the original source, the microalgae, and actually culture the microalgae, grow the stuff for people. And that's what many people are doing now. And so we can get EPA and DHA from microalgae in supplement form. And to me, it makes absolute sense to provide, because we don't 
don't know for sure about conversion. Now, most people convert reasonably well. Women convert more efficiently than men because they have to support you know, the, the growth of a baby. But uh, generally, conversion is not tremendously efficient. And so in my view, it makes absolute sense to supplement with EPA and DHA to be on the safe side while there's still a bit of a question mark. And uh, if you're able, if you're not able, you make, uh, you take double your ALA intake. And that's my feeling. And I think for children, including about 100 milligrams of EPA and DHA a day is a very, very reasonable thing to do. Great. And you can buy that now in droppers as well online. So you can sort of work it into a smoothie because I know that it can, it does have a little bit of a flavor and a little bit of a smell, but I think you can blend it in and sort of mask it quite nicely with with the dropper. Yes. And there are a lot of companies that have masked it already. So they'll have it flavored with a little bit of berries or citrus or something like that. And it actually is far less offensive than the fish oil uh, supplements so many people use. So 100 milligrams that was of EPA, DHA combined or 100 milligrams of EPA and DHA? Uh, just combined is fine. Yeah, and, and it's a little bit more for teenagers. You might, you might aim for you know, 150 or 200, but for children up to about 12 or 13, I would say 100 is fine. Sure. And is that something that you take personally as well as an adult? I actually do. I do. And I, I think it's a wise idea for people to take it because there are a lot of people that just don't convert efficiently. As you get older, you don't convert as efficiently. If you have diabetes, if you have hypertension, if you come from a, you know, a culture that traditionally used a lot of fish, you may not produce as many of the conversion enzymes, the delta-60 saturase and so on, that is necessary for that conversion. And so there are a lot of people for whom conversion may not be as efficient as we would like it to be. Of course, there are things you can do to improve conversion as well. So for example, if you pour a lot of omega-6 rich oils on your food, the omega-6 competes with the omega-3, competes with those conversion enzymes, and, and you end up not converting as much of the omega-3s if you've got, you know, a huge, huge ratio of 6 to 3. So you've got, you know, 10 or 20 to 1 of omega-6 to omega-3. It can reduce conversion by 40, 50, 60 percent in some cases. Other things, we need to make sure we've got a good, healthy, balanced diet with enough protein, enough of the, the cofactors that assist in that conversion process, like zinc and certain B vitamins and so on. So we need to have a reasonable diet as well. And we need to make sure we get enough ALA. Uh, and that's just consuming a tablespoon of ground flax or, you know, a couple tablespoons of hemp seeds or a tablespoon of chia seeds, you know, an ounce of walnuts. And that will give us a couple of grams of the alpha-linolenic acid. Beautiful. So that's omega-3 fats. We're not going to go through every single nutrient because it is in the book for everyone to explore. And some of them we have discussed on the show before, like vitamin B12 and vitamin D. So I'd rather not sort of dive into those. Where I think we could go is iodine because I feel like that's one that less people are speaking about. And I also think calcium. I think parents are probably interested in calcium 
given that if you're removing dairy, which we know is a rich source in calcium, where is that going to come from? So let's let's start with iodine and then go to calcium. Sure. Uh, I mean, iodine is a nutrient that a lot of people don't realize, but iodine, severe iodine deficiency is the number one cause of preventable brain damage in the world. And even a mild deficiency in a pregnant woman could lower the IQ of their baby by 10 to 15 points. So it's really important that we have a source of iodine in the diet. And in fact, it's so important that globally we've uh, iodized salt to help reduce the devastating consequences of iodine deficiency. And so the reason it tends to be a problem in vegan diets is a lot of vegans, a lot of people eating you know, whole food plant-based diets, they don't want to use iodized salt. And once you've removed iodized salt, well, the other sources of iodine tend to be you know, dairy products, fish, seafood, eggs, you know, animal products. And the only other big concentrated source is seaweed. And a lot of people, I mean, seaweed is a a major staple in Japan, but not in that many other countries. So if you've removed the animal products, you don't eat seaweed and you're not using iodized salt, where is your iodine coming from? (laughs) And so we really need to just have it on our radar. And so there's a couple of ways of making sure that we're providing a source of iodine uh, for our family. And one of the ways is, of course, to use iodized salt or iodized sea salt. If we're not willing to do that, then we could use something like a seaweed, for example. And But we have to be careful with seaweed because seaweed can be extremely concentrated in iodine. So if you're using nori, you know those little nori sheets that kids like to snack on, it's not very concentrated and you, you don't, you know, one full-size nori sheet is probably about 100 micrograms of iodine. Adults need about 150 um, micrograms of iodine a day and children uh, need about, it varies, but for small toddlers, it's about 90 micrograms and then it goes up to 150 by the time they're, they're 14 years of age. But what's really interesting is for babies, it's 110 for zero to, to six months micrograms and 130 for seven to 12 months. And so if they're breastfeeding, it's really important that mom has a reliable source and we don't always have iodine in prenatal supplements and so I would say if you're doing a prenatal supplement check to make sure it does have iodine and then beyond that uh, there are some seaweeds that you can use if you hate the taste of seaweed you can get, you know, 150 micrograms in a 16th of a teaspoon of kelp, which you wouldn't even taste sprinkling it on something. Uh, so kelp powder, I mean. So there, you know, just get familiar with the amount of iodine in different seaweeds. And you need to be very careful because as little as an eighth of a teaspoon of kelp could actually exceed the upper limit for toddlers. So, you know, the upper limit, the, they need 90 micrograms but the upper limit's 200 micrograms, so it's not a, you know, a big window there. Um, of course, the other option is a supplement, and it can be a multivite for kids or whatever. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you exactly that. Uh, what's your position on a multivitamin for a young child or for a teenager? If a parent's thinking, you know, this sounds like a lot of stuff to consider here, is a multivitamin a good way just to cover the bases? I don't think it's a bad way, to be honest, because a lot of kids, especially young kids, can be really picky and they can go through little jags with their their eating 
If you're providing a multi that's got some zinc and some iron and it's got the B12, it's got a little extra vitamin D and, you know, some of these nutrients of concern, especially if it's got that little bit of iodine added, then it, it's just a little bit of an assurance that those nutrients, those bases are covered. It's not expensive to do. And, and so I think it's a very, very reasonable thing for parents to do. I'm not sure in Canada if it's the same, but certainly in Australia, one thing that I suggest for people to look at when they're going for a multivitamin is just to check B12. I know here some of the B12 input is very, very small. And I was, I was a little concerned if someone was following a completely plant-exclusive diet that that input might not be enough. But then there are other brands that have a much better input of vitamin B12 around that sort of 200 microgram level. Is that something you've seen? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's an issue. And so what I would say is if you're doing a multivite with B12, but the B12 is a fairly small amount like the RDA, say it's you know close to two micrograms, if you're regularly providing fortified foods, like fortified B12 fortified non-dairy milks, B12 fortified cereals, whatever fortified foods, you're probably going to be at a reasonable you know, amount. If you're not uh, providing a lot of fortified foods, then I would definitely add in on top of that multi a B12 supplement at least once or twice a week, and that'll have your bases covered. Okay, very good. Let's finish on calcium with regards to these sort of nutrients of focus. Uh, I mentioned before, I think some parents might have a little apprehension removing dairy. It's marketed as the food for strong bones. I know growing up, Brenda, I would regularly have my three glasses of milk every single day. Uh, talk to me about this. What do we need to consider if we're removing dairy from one's diet? Well, I'm really glad you brought up calcium because I think it is something we need to pay attention to. And certainly, uh, you're probably familiar with Walter Willett and David uh, Ludwig's paper, Milk and Health, uh, from I think it was 2020. And it was probably one of the most, it's free online, it's one of the most comprehensive documents looking at the relationship between dairy intake and health, including bone health. And it didn't find dairy to be necessary at all, but... That doesn't mean calcium's not necessary. <laughs> and what we're seeing, we've had two studies that I know you're familiar with, one Seventh-day Adventist study from the States and another Epic Oxford from the UK showing some you know, potentially reduced bone health indicators in, in vegans particularly. And I think it's really important that people don't just eliminate dairy and think their bases are covered. We need to make sure we have decent sources of calcium and decent sources of vitamin D. And, um, you know, vegans and vegan children often fall significantly below the RDA for calcium, whatever it is in their country. And I think this, I mean, I think part of the reason we see lower uh, bone mineral density in a lot of vegans in particular is because they tend to have lower body weights. And people who have a lower BMI uh, have less bone. <laughs> and, and so I think that explains some of it. But I think we still need to ensure uh, reliable calcium sources. And we should aim to get, you know, relatively close to the RDA in our country. And so that 
to me, it just means getting familiar with calcium rich plant foods. And, you know, we're not familiar with calcium rich plant foods because it's not on the radar in terms of nutrition education in most countries. In most countries, Nutrition education where calcium is concerned is very dairy influenced. And so people believe that dairy is the only source of calcium and it's not. There's, you know, low oxalate leafy greens. Uh, we absorb, we absorb about 32% of the calcium from milk. We absorb 40 to 70% of the calcium from low oxalate greens like kale and bok choy and, you know, other Chinese greens and broccoli and turnip greens and things like that. Now it's important to recognize that there are some greens that are high in oxalates like spinach and beet greens and Swiss chard. And we only absorb about 5% of the calcium from those foods. So they're not tremendously great sources of calcium, even though on you know charts, it looks like they have a lot of calcium. We just can't get it out of the foods because they're high in oxalates. But even legumes like great Northern beans and black beans, and you know some of the, the beans are good sources. Tofu that's made with calcium is an excellent source of calcium. Blackstrap molasses and tahini and, you know, almonds and figs. And there are quite a few plant foods that provide some calcium. And then on top of that, one of the easiest ways to make sure that calcium needs are actually met are to provide some fortified non-dairy milk as well. So if you're providing your child with, you know, fortified soy milk or fortified almond or cashew milk, I mean, I would recommend fortified soy milk over the others simply because soy milk is much more nutrient dense than almond milk, for example, in terms of the protein and other mineral content as well. And so if you provide your child with, you know, two servings of a fortified non-dairy milk per day, plus a variety of calcium-rich plant foods, you're, it, it's, all, it's all good. You'll, you'll get there. So I think that's the important thing to realize. But don't ignore calcium uh, for sure. You want it to be on your radar. Some great points there. I always wonder actually about the growing plant-based milk market and the number of plant-based milks that are popping up without calcium in them and without, say, B12 and vitamin D. And I wonder, is that something that you've thought about? I think it would be much more helpful in terms of promoting health because let's face it, not everyone is going to have this information and there are going to be people that are just removing dairy. They're going and grabbing that almond milk and it's not a like-for-like like comparison from a nutritional point of view. Is that something you think about in terms of the food environment? Oh, absolutely. Because if you're trying to make sure your bases are covered, having a, a milk that's got that extra vitamin D, the extra calcium, the extra B12, it just makes it so much easier to meet those recommendations. And what you need to know is that fortifying foods with nutrients has been done in the omnivorous community for years. So we didn't have enough iodine in our food. We added it to the salt. We didn't have enough vitamin D in the food. We added it to milk. Uh, we didn't have enough iron and folic acid in food. We added it to flour. Uh, we've been doing this for a long time. And so as we're switching over to a plant-based diet, we need to take a look at things and say, well, what nutrients are potentially lacking and where can we add them to make sure that people get enough? And I think it's just a very reasonable uh, thing to do. And I know people have this 
you know, desire for, you know, absolute purity and not adding a bunch of things to foods and so on. But I think top priority is to make sure we get the nutrients into our kids that are necessary for them to grow and develop optimally. And so we just don't want to take a risk with that. And, and so I think it's just so reasonable to be including a fortified non-dairy milk and or whatever other fortified. We should fortify our veggie meats as well with, with iron and zinc and, you know, just make sure that B12. we're getting, Yeah, B12 for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. I sort of admire the purest natural approach, but I think the best approach is looking at health outcomes. And you just spoke to some studies there when we're looking at bone mineral density and fractures. And there's enough information there to suggest that the more sensible approach is looking for nutritional adequacy and not, we shouldn't see these fortified foods as unnatural and harmful. In fact, when they're added to our diet, they're very beneficial. Absolutely. And, and you know, if you look at the research on children over the years, I mean, we have... We have a number of studies that have proven that vegan diets can, within that exclusively plant-based diets, can provide what children need. But we also have studies showing that, you know, in spite of better cardiometabolic outcomes, you know, less obesity and overweight, eating of more fruits and vegetables, we have a number of studies showing a little bit higher risk for some of the nutritional shortfalls. And so those things we need to address. We just need to get it right because, in, you know, I feel so strongly that the world needs to to move in this direction. And as the world moves in this direction, we've got to make sure, you know, I think we're on trial in the eyes of the world until we have, you know, children that are born and die vegans and, you know, live long and healthy lives. We're on trial and we need to make sure of nutritional adequacy for sure. And it's not that difficult to do, uh, but we don't want to ignore the critical nutrients. You mentioned soy milk. We're coming to the end here, but you mentioned soy. And again, that's something else that pops up. And certain people have read certain things about it and may fear it and may think, well, I'm not going to choose soy milk for my child. What's your approach to soy? And, and if someone sort of came to you with that fear, what would you say to them? Well, you know, I don't know that there's any other food we have more research for than for soy. Um, so I'd say two things. We have five blue zones in the world. Of those five blue zones, two of them eat, consume soy as a dietary staple. And that's the Seventh-day Adventists and Okinawa, Japan. And if you have two of the blue zones, the longest lived healthiest people in the world, consuming soy as a dietary staple, averaging about two servings a day, it's probably not poison, you know? And so that's just common sense. I mean, and, and so many people in Asia have consumed soy as a dietary staple for thousands of years. So I think it obviously is a very uh, reasonable food. Now, what we know about soy is we know the quality of the protein in soy is extremely high. Very, very similar to milk or eggs or meat in terms of protein quality. A lot of the soy foods like tofu and soy milk are 
super digestible. And so those can be a real advantage for children. But the other things that we know, which I think are really interesting, is people who consume soy regularly. So for females, they have a lower lifetime risk, especially if they consume soy as a child, they actually have a significantly lower lifetime risk of breast cancer. If males consume soy, they have a lower risk of prostate cancer. And so, you know, there are definite benefits. The, you know, a lot of people are scared about the, you know, the genistein and the daidzein and the isoflavones that soy contains, but these are very, very weak estrogens or what we call phytoestrogens. And they can actually act as weak estrogens in some of our body tissues, but they can act as anti-estrogens in others. So, and it appears they act more as anti-estrogens or anti-human estrogens in breast tissue, which is highly protective. And so I think that, um, you know, soy is a, a highly nutritious food. I always choose organic when I choose soy, but I think that it can add so much to a plant-based diet in terms of variety, flavor. There's so much that you can do with these foods. And um, I think it's kind of sad when people remove them because, um, you know, the Weston A. Price Foundation, that's probably the biggest anti-vegetarian organization on the planet, says that it's poisonous or that it's dangerous for human health. We need to recognize where that's coming from. And we need to look at the science on this. And the science Science is extremely clear that soy foods can be a very, very healthful addition to a diet. Well said. I think that's an that's another one of those areas of nutrition science where certain rat studies get overhyped a little bit too much and and used to perpetuate this fear that is rather unnecessary. And you're a perfect example of someone who's been eating this way for a long time. And you certainly do not look like you're 62. You are energetic. You appear very, very youthful. So a great example of, of it working very well for someone. Now, as we come to the end here, Firstly, I think I need to get you back on the show to talk separately to pregnancy. I think we should lock that in at some time. I found that part in the book very, very interesting. But secondly, and perhaps as a way of ending this episode, you have seen this space transform over the past 30-odd years. And we spoke of the Health Canada guidelines and that being you know, a, a real milestone and a changing of the way that governments are thinking. You mentioned they decided to not be influenced by industry. And this has me thinking, I, I'm led to believe that you're fairly optimistic, but based on all of your experience, how do you see things playing out in the next decade or so? And what do you think needs to happen in order for this plant-based approach to become more common and less fringy and move more towards the mainstream? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I am extraordinarily optimistic. I can remember 10, 15 years ago when it was hard to find a doctor who was interested in plant-based nutrition 
And then we started having these little conferences, American College of Lifestyle Medicine and Plantrition, and, and they just ballooned in very short order from having 100 people to having, you know, where they had to cut off registration at 1,500. And I see more and more young people going into medicine, going into dietetics, who are plant-based themselves and are determined to do what they can to, to move things along in the right direction. To be honest with you, I never thought I would see in my lifetime what I'm seeing today. The word vegan or plant-based plastered over foods in an effort to sell more of the foods, which wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. It would not have enticed them to buy a product to see that word there. But today, you can go into almost any restaurant and find a vegan or vegetarian, at least vegetarian, usually vegan options. It is becoming mainstream and it is so exciting to see. I'm just seeing all of the, the you know, the plant-based groups and all of the plant-based, even Lithuania has a master's of lifestyle medicine that's completely plant-based. It's uh, UK is looking at uh, having one soon. There's Loma Linda University that has all kinds of, you know, education programs that are very plant-based focused. And we're seeing just more and more of it. And to me, what needs to happen is that uh, we need to keep seeing more and more studies done. Well, there's still a dearth of studies in, in terms of, for example, children and exclusively plant-based diets. We need to see more research and we need to see nutrition incorporated into medical school programs. And so we need to see more lobbying of the government in every country. And just, we need to be setting an example ourselves. I think for individuals, that's that's the thing. For me, you know, at 62 years old, I still am as physically active as I was when I was 30, maybe even a little bit more. I usually do at least an hour to two hours of exercise every day. And it's my stress management, whether it's going for a run or a rollerblade or a bike or, you know, there's not much of anything I won't try in terms of fitness. So I think being able to do that and other people seeing that and saying, wow, you know, it was so funny. My granddaughter said to me the other day, she said, Grandma, she said, how come you're so much younger than all the other grandmas? Because I play, I play on the monkey bars with her. We go down the slides together. We, I chase her and we play all those games. And she said, how come none of the other grandmas can do that, Grandma? You know? <laughs> and and that for me says it all. It's that's what we want to achieve is extraordinary health as we're aging and to be able to, you know, I guess as uh, David Katz says, put life in our years <laughs> and that um, that's what it's all about. I want to be climbing mountains when I'm in my 90s and 100. <laughs> Amen to that. You are setting a, a fantastic example and, you know, a big inspiration to me and just so, so well researched and so evidence-based. And I said at the start, you've published now 12 books. So a big thank you to you for everything that you've done and all of your perseverance through some of those times that would have been no doubt very challenging. So thank you so much and thank you for joining me today. As I said, I'd love for you to come back on and perhaps we can talk all things pregnancy and nutrition. And to all the listeners out there, please do go and grab yourself a copy of Nourish whether you have a family now or you're planning to have a family, I'm absolutely certain that you're going to find so much valuable information inside.
Well, I want to say, Simon, that I am so grateful to you because you are getting the word out to so many people and you are always so balanced in your approach. I am very, very grateful for all of the the knowledge that you're spreading in the world and for your passion. So thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Brenda. It's been a pleasure. There we go. Isn't Brenda great? Such a powerful force. I'm guessing that quite a lot of you are going to want to get your hands on her new book, Nourish. There's sections inside that expand on a lot of what we spoke about, along with specific information for pregnancy, lactation, childhood, and adolescence. It really is a fantastic evidence-based book that I know will give families much more confidence moving to a plant-based approach. And in the not-too-distant future, I hope to have pediatrician Dr. Reshma Shah, who Brenda wrote Nourish With, on the show to dig a little more into the pregnancy and infancy side of things. So consider this an ongoing conversation for families. I know it's a popular topic that so many of you have requested I continue to cover. So that I will do. For those that do want to get a copy of Nourish, you can find a direct link in the show notes along with Brenda's socials. Connect with her and let her know what you thought of today's episode. I know she would love to hear from you. Finally, before I let you go, I'm often asked about what supplements I take myself as an adult, particularly following episodes like this dedicated to optimizing our diet. I take the Essential 8 by NutraKind, which is a multi-nutrient supplement that I formulated for an Australian company. It contains iodine, DHA, EPA, omega-3s, B12, vitamin D, iron, zinc, selenium, and a small amount of calcium. Formulated to perfectly complement a plant-based diet, be it vegetarian, vegan, or mostly plant-based. If that sounds of interest, something that you would like to explore further, I've popped a link to the NutraKind website into the show notes. And with that, I think we can call it a day. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for hanging out with me all the way to the end here. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. And I look forward to doing it all again in just a few days. Until then, remember... More plants, my friends, more plants.